If you were with us last week, you heard Meredith get to everybody's favorite part of Jeremiah, the destruction and judgment part. And one thing she addressed was just that, our discomfort with judgment, and how, at least in part, that discomfort is based on a misunderstanding. Thinking about judgment as arbitrary punishment, when it's anything but. To paraphrase what she was saying just a bit, when you, when you walk the path that leads away from the source of life, the obvious result is that when you get to the end of that path, there isn't going to be any life there. And today, we're going to take a deeper look at another aspect of judgment that we lose sight of all too often, which leads to a misunderstanding not of judgment itself, but rather of who God is. And misunderstanding who God is has serious implications for how we live our lives as followers of Jesus. Those of you who have been around church for some length of time, if you've heard much about the prophet Jeremiah, you may have heard him referred to as the weeping prophet because of the consistent presence in this book of outpourings of lament and emotion. And the main point I want to make today is that while there are examples of Jeremiah's emotion in this book, that designation is actually something of a misnomer. Jeremiah is not a book about a weeping prophet, or at least if it is, it's far more a book about a weeping God. And there are basically two reasons that it's often not read that way. The first is understandable. The book of Jeremiah often does not make it easy to figure out who exactly is speaking at any given time. It is hard to read. Sometimes it clearly says, you know, Yahweh says, da, da, da. But other times the speaker changes without warning. Sometimes Jeremiah seems to be speaking on behalf of someone else, giving voice to Jerusalem or the people as a whole or even God. And so there are times when it's not entirely clear and we have to do the best we can to figure out who might be saying what. The other reason that readers of Jeremiah might miss God's emotion, though, I don't have nearly as much sympathy for. And that is the long history of importing into the book of Jeremiah a theology of who God is that is based on far more on Greek philosophy than it is on what God has actually revealed about God's self in the pages of the Bible. Importing into the Bible a theology that's based on Greek philosophy rather than the Bible itself. And Meredith can vouch that I have been regularly frustrated when reading commentaries and articles in preparation for these sermons at the sometimes comical lengths most of the scholars who study Jeremiah will go to to exclude emotion from God's character, when, in fact, the most obvious reading of the text that's in front of us would tell us to do the opposite. So what I want to do is take a look at a couple of examples from chapters 8 through 10 of Jeremiah. And if you've got a Bible, having it available might be helpful today because we are going to flip around and look at a few different texts here in the next few minutes. So we're going to start in chapter 8, verse 18, and then the verses following that. And we read this. My simper is on account of my groan. Within me, my spirit is sick. There is the sound of my dear people's cry for help from the country far and wide. Is Yahweh not in Zion or is its king not in it? Why do they provoke me with their images, with empty foreign beings? Harvest has passed, summer is gone, but we ourselves haven't found deliverance. Because of my dear people's wounding, I'm broken. I mourn. Devastation has taken hold of me. Is there no ointment in Gilead? Or is there no healer there? Because why has my dear people's restoration not developed? If only my head were water, my eye a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night. 
for the slain among my poor people. If only I could have a traveler's lodge in the wilderness and abandon my people, go from them, because all of them are adulterers, a pack of people breaking faith. There is a dialogue going on in this passage between God, like in verse 19, why do they provoke me with their images? And the people, like in verse 20, we ourselves haven't found deliverance. And the simplest reading is that these are the words of God in this passage, except for a couple instances where God quotes the people's words as a part of God's own message. But many scholars don't read it that way. And instead, they say some variation of this. Well, the first sentence of verse 19 is Jeremiah, but then the second sentence is the people, and the third sentence is God, then verse 20 is the people, verse 21 is Jeremiah again, then the first sentence of verse 22, the people, and then the second sentence is God, and then chapter 9, verse 1 is Jeremiah, and then verse 2 switches back to God, and they put together this hyper-convoluted smushing together of different voices, and when you read the reasoning for why they have made things this complicated, there's not anything there. It basically boils down to, well, God couldn't possibly be talking about crying. (laughs) To quote Tom Hanks, there's no crying in theology. Or take this example from the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 9. For these things shall I not deal with them, Yahweh's words, or on a nation that's like this, will I myself not take redress? Clearly God is speaking here. But then verse 10, the very next verse. For the mountains I take up weeping and wailing, And for the wilderness pastures a lament, because they're laid waste, so that no one is passing through and people don't hear the sound of cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the animals, they've fled. They've gone. And the commentators say, well, clearly this can't be God, so it must be Jeremiah now. But then immediately after that in verse 11, I shall make Jerusalem into heaps of rubble, the dwelling of jackals. I think it's safe to say that ain't Jeremiah there. So then the next chapter, another example in chapter 10, verse 19. Oh, alas for me, on account of my wound, my injury is sickening. Whereas myself, I had said, oh, this is only an illness and I shall bear it. Commentators say, well, that that must be Jeremiah, except for verse 20. My tent is destroyed. All my tent cords have broken. My children have gone out from me. There are none of them, none to spread my tent again or hang out my tent cloths. And then one last example from a bit earlier in the book, chapter 4, verse 18. And this first verse is clearly God. It's one that we have quoted before. Your way and your deeds have done these things to you because it's bitter, because it has reached your heart. My pain, my pain, I writhe. The walls of my heart, my heart howls within me. I cannot be still because you've heard my soul, the sound of the horn, The battle shout, wounding upon wounding is proclaimed because the entire country is destroyed. In an instant, my tent cloths. How long shall I see a banner? Listen to the sound of the horn. Because my people are stupid, they haven't acknowledged me. They're dense children. They're not people who understand. They are clever at doing evil, but they don't know how to do good. It's God at the beginning of that passage. It's God at the end. And the simplest, most obvious way to read it is that it is God's voice throughout. And that's true of each of the passages we've looked at so far today. And I think what makes this even more likely for me is that if you look back at each of those passages, in the verses immediately before the outpouring of anguish and emotion, you get God speaking about the judgment and destruction 
that's about to come upon God's people. It's as if God sees clearly what is about to happen, knows there is no other way, and it tears God's heart apart. It's almost like the night Jesus is arrested, when he goes to the garden to pray, and his friends can't keep their eyes open to keep watch, and Jesus weeps before God, begging for there to be another way, but knowing that there is no other way. Why would God's heart in the Old Testament be any different than Jesus' heart in the New? And we need to pause there on that question. Why did we start thinking that God wouldn't have emotions? We talk about God speaking to us, uh, relating to us personally, loving us. What would any of those things mean absent emotion? And to answer that, we need to take a quick trip back to Greek philosophy and Greek philosophical thought. And this is very much going to be a thumbnail sketch and not a deep dive here. But certain Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and the like, and the Christian theologians who followed after that Greek philosophical tradition, which was most of them in the early church and the medieval world, like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, they started thinking more abstractly about God or the gods and the world and asking those big abstract questions about why is there something rather than nothing and how can we prove God's existence and how can we use logic to develop our understanding of who or what God is. And their style of reasoning and those types of questions had lots of implications for how Christians began reading the Bible. Some of this was helpful and helped us see new things in scripture that had been missed before. Some of it was not so helpful. Um, Just as one example of that, one of the bedrock assumptions of Greek philosophy was that physical matter is bad, evil, corrupt. I mean, just look, we decay over time, so that must mean we are faulty. While, on the other hand, the spiritual and the immaterial, that must be good and pure. This is not a biblical idea, but it did influence thousands of years of Christians to not take seriously What is a biblical idea? The reality that the earth God created and gave to us is good and is intended to be good in all its physicality, not apart from that physicality. So that's one example of how this played out. For our topic today, there's a doctrine that came out of this tradition known as impassibility. Impassibility. And the logic goes like this. God is perfect. So far, so good. Therefore, God must be unchanging in every respect, because if something perfect changes, then either it wasn't perfect to begin with, or it isn't perfect now because it's changed. There, the logic gets a little shakier, in my opinion. So then, therefore, God must be emotionless, because as we know, emotions change. So if God had emotions, then God would change, and God wouldn't be perfect anymore. This all kind of reminds me of that scene in The Princess Bride. Now, there is also, it has to be said, a very clear element of misogyny in all of this. Women, after all, as Henry Uggins made clear in My Fair Lady, and as anyone can tell you, are all emotional wrecks while men are all stoic and reasonable. Please hear my sarcasm. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the Christian tradition has seemed far more comfortable with God displaying the emotion of anger, which is traditionally associated with men, and far less comfortable with the idea of God displaying the emotion of sorrow. But in Jeremiah, we have both, and we ought to take that seriously. Ancient Israel was not influenced by Greek philosophy. Plato did not come along for hundreds of years after this book was written. And so the theological environment around Israel at this time 
had a very different idea of the gods than the one I've just been describing. The gods in the ancient Near East were emotional. They wept, they laughed, they raged. And so passages like these in Jeremiah wouldn't have seemed strange at all to the hearers of Jeremiah's message. Of course, Yahweh is like this. How else would God be? And the reason we've gone through all of this is that it matters that we read these passages correctly. It matters that we counteract whatever cultural baggage we have that tells us that God couldn't possibly get emotional. There are important implications for us here. First, we live in an increasingly pluralistic world where there are any number of beliefs floating around. And sometimes people try to deal with that pluralism by reconciling those beliefs into a, hey, we're all really saying the same things, aren't we? Can't we just get along? Kind of mishmash. And usually that's done by flattening different beliefs into, well, the heart of all religions is the insight that the world would be a better place if we separate ourselves from our selfish desires and just kind of detach, thinking of others ahead of ourselves, that sort of thing. It's a, can't we all get along mashup of the golden rule and Buddhist detachment. But God does not detach. God passionately attaches, even at the risk, as we see in Jeremiah, of deep emotional anguish. The invitation of the Bible is not to detach from worldly desires and blissfully float above it all. The invitation of the Bible is to allow God to realign our desires so that they match God's desires for the world and then to passionately, tenaciously, all-consumingly, emotionally attach to those desires. I've told the story before about my Southern professor who said to our class, you know, I I hear a lot about balance these days, how we're supposed to be balanced, and I just don't know. I I don't see much evidence of Jesus as being a very balanced individual. (laughs) Second, as I implied before, It matters that we understand God as an emotional God because it counteracts certain misogynist and patriarchal tendencies in our culture. The tendencies that cause us to dismiss women as emotional and therefore less than. The tendencies to see men as in some sense more in the image of God because, well, we are rational and stoic, you know, like God. The tendency for us to tamp down the emotional lives of boys because, well, that's not how God wants them to be or something. Knowing the full range of God's emotional life allows us to not be frightened by the full range of our own. And that's the third implication for us here. God's emotion gives permission for our own emotion. There are, of course, ways in which emotion can be misapplied, can cause us to act in destructive ways. But the problem there is the way we deal with the emotions, not the emotions themselves. Meredith can tell you that I spent the first probably 30 years of my life or so believing that I was pretty even keel, didn't get too high or too low, and wasn't that great of me to be so unemotional. The reality, of course, is that there is more than a little drama queen in me, and I tried to find a non-gendered way to say that and failed, which is kind of my point. If any of you are fans of the TV show Shit's Creek, I'm a bit of a David, is what I'm saying, and the more I don't acknowledge the emotions I actually do have, surprisingly enough, in there somewhere, the more I don't acknowledge them, the more likely it is that they will turn destructive for me and for the people around me. The Psalms are full of people venting their full range of emotions to God. And the story of David shows him venting those extreme emotions of rage at his enemies to God one minute, and then the next minute, 
extending grace and mercy to those same enemies. I can't help but think that there's a connection there. Fourth, taking God's emotion seriously, especially the anguish Yahweh voices in the pages of Jeremiah, it gives us one answer to what is sometimes called the problem of pain. The Bible never gives us a thorough, clear answer to the questions, why do bad things happen to good people? Or how could God allow suffering? We'll actually see Jeremiah asking those very questions in a couple weeks. But the question the Bible does answer is, where is God in all this suffering? And the answer is, right alongside those who suffer, suffering too. God is not detached, emotionless, above it all in the face of the world's anguish. God is just as anguished. God may not always explain why bad things happen. God does say, me too. And then finally, fifth, the reality of God's emotions gives us a path to greater intimacy with God. We can connect to God, not just on a spiritual level or an intellectual level, which is where I sometimes like to stay, but if we're open, we can connect to God on an emotional level as well, just as we would, frankly, with any other person. And I think it's in connecting to God in that way that we allow God to work on us and to through us to affect all the other positive implications that we've been talking through today. So we're going to turn now to a practice that helps us connect with the realities we see in scripture, in this case, God's emotions, that might cause us to see things differently. How do we allow scripture to shape how we see the world around us instead of us flattening it to fit into our preconceived notions? And so Meredith is going to lead us through a practice that helps us to do that. 